Good morning. It is great to be here with you. Um, and uh, I- I'm excited. Today is Palm Sunday. I had mentioned that earlier. If if you grew up in a church that celebrated Palm Sunday, I think probably uh, a lot of people did. Um, Holy Week was such an important week. I remember having services every week, every day of the week. Um, and as a kid thinking, oh, I got to go every week. But Palm Sunday, I specifically remember because we were given palm branches and we got to wave them in the air. In fact, I think there were seasons of life where we got to like walk down the middle. And I, I know stories from my wife of waving those and walking down the church to start the service. I, I had no idea why, but I knew I got to wave branches um, in the air. And I remember specifically they would take them back. I remember uh, at the end having to hand them back and thinking, why are you taking these branches back? Um, so today we're going to actually remember Palm Sunday because it is really important to the passage in Hebrews that we're going to be looking at. We're in a series in the book of Hebrews and it, it has worked out great. Uh, perfectly that God has laid this. As I've been reading uh, the passion, kind of the story um, in scripture and the gospels uh, leading up to Easter these last few weeks, Palm Sunday is such an important day um, and it it fits so nicely today into what we're looking at. Now, Palm Sunday, I I just looked up, I searched Palm Sunday, you know, for some gifts. I thought, oh, there's got to be some great Palm Sunday, a palm branch. These are the top gifts I found. Unreal! What? <laughs> Look at these. This is what pops up. What people made these? This is incredible. There's. Uh, it looks like actually maybe like we're in a museum. Some kind of animatronic waving palm branches. Those look almost more like uh, waving for like a king to keep them cool. This one in the middle is a mate. The uh, and then the one on the bottom. I mean, look at this picture of Jesus. Like, what is, what is going on? He's riding his donkey in. This is this moment in uh, scripture where we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, like a king coming back uh, from battle. And uh, these are the gifts that I could find, a little palm branch. I'm going to take them off because they feel so distracting. Um, we're going to start by looking. Um, and so, uh, at at the uh, this passage, so this happens after Jesus has uh, was born. He has done his. He's grown up. He has his ministry. He's gathered his disciples. He's been moving around the area, uh, really showing that he is he is a king, that he is God, that he is this Messiah who's come. And now all of these people from all over the place come together for this festival. It's this time where they come to celebrate the Passover. It's this week where they gather uh, in Jerusalem to celebrate when God did this incredible thing and had death pass over them. So it's the story of the Exodus. They were enslaved by the Pharaoh, by Egyptians, and God came and said, I'm going to rescue you. And so what he does is he says, hey, it, this is going to happen quick. Tonight, I need you to take an innocent, perfect lamb. I need you to take, to, to, to slaughter, to sacrifice it, put his blood on your doorpost. And that's a sign that you are faithful and that you're with me. And then I will pass, death will come and it will pass over your homes and then you're going to escape. So it's a story of God 
setting his people free, them giving of this lamb's life, and then God setting them free. There's uh, there's the story of the unleavened bread. There wasn't time even to let the bread leaven and rise. And so there's unleavened bread involved, all these rituals involved in this thing. So G- this is what's happening. People are all coming together. Tons of people are here now, way more than normal. And then Jesus rides in on this donkey. There's lots of going on, but this we're going to start here in, in Matthew 21. Uh where uh, Jesus is riding in on this donkey and these people know who Jesus is. And so here's how they react to him. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the ground. They, they take off their coats and throw them in front of Jesus so the hooves of the donkey can even ride, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. There's our palm branches, right? Or some kind of branches. They take branches to put on this road so he doesn't have to walk on mud or dirt or water. It's this sign of like, we want, we want to welcome you in. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed, they shouted, There's cr- can you imagine crowds all over? He's riding in this triumphal entry. They're throwing cloaks and palm branches on the ground and they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. That's why I used to yell at church. We yell, Hosanna, Hosanna. We didn't say this whole thing, I think. Too hard to memorize. Uh, but Hosanna, Hosanna, right? They're, they're, they're welcoming their king. They're saying, here he is. He has come. Hosanna. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Right? And they asked, who is this? Of course, all right? There's something happening here. The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So not, not king language there. He's a pro- He's this great man, right? The crowds were, I'm sure they're mixed with all sorts of different thoughts of who Jesus was. But at least he's this great religious man. He comes in and they walk and they're cheering for him. It's this great entry. It's like a player running onto the field and everyone erupts. He's our guy. He is going to win it for us. Now watch what happens right after this. Jesus rides his donkey into town, and then what does he do? Jesus entered. Now look at these verses. This is right after this. Verse 11, verse 12. Verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He comes into town and they go, Hosanna, he's here. He's gonna, he's the great prophet, king. Some would be saying he's our savior. He, he moves into the temple. The temple here, that's, it's, that's not just a, happens to be a place that he went. This is important. Temple is the center of their worship, the center of their culture. This is the place that houses the presence of God. This is where they send their priests to, to atone for their sins, to do sacrifices. This is where God is in the center of their community. He goes in there and he starts driving people out. Now in the temple at this point, there are people selling goods. It's a strip mall of items you can use. You can buy like a lamb that you can then have sacrificed so that God would be happy with you. It becomes this, uh, this economy based around this system so that people can get right with God. They can deal with their own guilt, their shame, right? It's this religious system that has been created. Last week we were talking about, and we're going to continue talking about this week. So he comes in there and this is what, you might remember this story as a kid. I remember this story. But I don't remember it being connected to, to Jesus coming in on a donkey. He comes in his donkey. He gets off his donkey. And then here's what he does. Look at the end of this verse. 
He overturned tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Okay, why are they selling doves? That seems like a wise business. It is there because doves were used, uh, right, for sacrifices. They're used in these religious ceremonies. There's people who are taking money from all these people who've come from all over the place and they're exchanging their money so that they can go buy these doves and then ultimately give these doves to these priests who then are going to sacrifice so God would be happy. It is written, he said to them, Jesus is flipping tables. And he says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. He's saying, this is my house. This is where God dwells and you have turned it into a strip mall. You're making money off people. You're scamming people. This is not what this was created for. This is created for a interaction with God, being in the presence of God, but you've made it a den of robbers. This does not make people real thrilled. Pretty quickly, right? Hey, yeah, we're excited for you. Wait a second. We have this system, Jesus, where we exchange money and goods and these people do things to help eliminate our sin, our our shame, our guilt, uh, get us forgiveness with God, get us in the presence of God. And so Jesus Jesus does this. Then then he goes on this, these short rants, not rants, right? He comes, these talks from Jesus. He's walking with his disciples through the temple, through the streets, through the culture and saying all of this system that's been set up, this temple, these religious leaders, they're not doing what you think they're doing. They're making money in this religious center. Their power and authority comes from their holding access to God over you. He starts telling parables then about their greed, about their fruitlessness, uh, about calling these religious leaders faithless. He looks at a fig tree that they're walking by and he says, hey, that fig tree has no fruit. It's dead inside. There's a death inside of it, which causes it not to be fruitful. Now, look at these leaders. There's death inside of them. There's no fruit. There's no faithfulness. These temple rituals you're doing, they're fruitless. In fact, they're deadly because they're making you think that they're life and they're not. And in the midst of this, they try to trick him and the leaders say, so what is the great command then, Jesus? And he says, the greatest commandment is to love God with everything and then overflow that love in love for others. You're called to be faithful and to love God and it seems that you love lots of other things and you've created systems to get you that power and that comfort and that security. In fact, this is wild. In Matthew 23, he approaches, these are the religious leaders, the people who run this, the people who people look to, to be in the presence and the connection of God. And he says to them, woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you're hypocrites. This is just the first of many woes he gives them. He says, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Do you hear that? People want to enter in to the presence of God and they shut the door on their faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying. You hear this? You're, you're not in the presence. You're not 
being faithful. You're not actually in heaven. You're not connected to the heavenly things. And you're keeping everyone else out. This is a serious accusation. He goes on to call them blind guides, that they've rejected justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says they're clean on the outside and filthy on the inside. At one point, he calls them bones of the dead. It's this, he says, oh, on the outside, you look clean and you're doing everything right. Inside, you're bones of the dead. Calls them snakes, a brood of vipers. Jesus enters <laughs> Jerusalem as a king on this donkey, and he quickly gets to work killing their religious system. And they're going to kill him for it. They're going to, on Good Friday, in just a few days, we celebrate his death because they kill him for this. Because he's coming to say, hey, this system you've set up that you think brings life and into the presence of God and brings forgiveness. It actually kills you. And they say, oh, how dare you? You're now taking away this control and this power we have. You're done. You got to get out of here. Little do they know, actually, that his death is what will free them and what will bring them, what will open the door. And so I, I share this because this enters us into our study in Hebrews. We've been looking at Jesus being greater and the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who have Jewish ethnicity and are, it's not that long after this event actually happened. And so these are people who grew up in this that, that would have been able to say, Hosanna, you're wonderful. And then way you're flipping tables in our temple. What are you doing? These are people who grew up in these systems, in these elaborate steps and rituals that got them closer to God, or they thought got them closer to God, that were saving up their money so they could buy animals in the temple to sacrifice to make God happy, that were following the same patterns as the cultures around them, bringing their goods and their food and their money and laying them at altars of gods to appease those gods, those gods would do things for them. And Jesus has come in and said, this is not how this works. You have a God who loves you and pursues you and we're going to come make these things right. And so in, the, in uh, chapter 8 of Hebrews, we hear this phrase that these things were just shadows pointing us to the one who will come and, and will make things right. And, and they took all of these things God gave them to do that should point them to Jesus and have faith in God and, and cause them to love God with all of their being and all of who they are and love other people and they have in, in, instead decided to really not love people well and to not make it about loving God, but doing all the right things to get them in the right place. And so as we continue in Hebrews, the author is going to now share about this temple, this tabernacle system, and explain why it doesn't work and why it really is just a shadow, a, a pointer, right? A, a pointer, an image bearer that should point us to Jesus. It in itself is not our Savior, but point us to our Savior. So that's what we're going to look at. This, what we're looking at right now, is what Jesus came to flip the tables over for. And we're going to be reminded in Hebrews of how important this is for us today. So now let's look at Hebrews 9. Um, we're just going to look at the first 15 verses here together. Just 15 verses now together. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. 
So we're going to talk about what is this place that Jesus came and slipping tables. A tabernacle was set up, or a, or a tent, that word could be tent. And now this is a time, um, so you know the context, when this first was set up, God's people were in the wilderness. This was after the, the exodus, after they had been freed. Remember, they were backed into a corner and God saved them through the Red Sea, and then uh, they quickly turned away from God. They built a golden idol, and God has them in the wilderness. And he says, I want you to build this thing, this place, this this place so that it would be the place where heaven and earth meet. And he's going to explain to them all the things to do in there. In this first room, in this tabernacle, there was a lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. So there's some kind of lamp. Uh, we, we, we know from, um, if you look through these passages in Numbers and uh, where it lays us out in Leviticus, where it lays all these things out. There's a golden lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. There's bread on there and there was, there was 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of God's people. This is the holy place. And behind a special curtain was a room called the most holy place with which you, you picture this on. There's a one big room and then there's, uh, or kind of a, there's kind of a fence around this area. And then in there, there's a room that has uh, this curtain around it. And this is the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense, the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna. So there's an altar, and it contains this Ark, this box, and this big box contains in it a gold jar of manna. Um, manna is the thing that God had come from heaven. It's this reminder that God provided for them. Aaron's staff, he's like the greatest of the high priests. The staff he held and the stone tablets of the covenant. These would be the Ten Commandments. So like the law that they had and the, the priests that they had, this provision God gave. Above the ark, now we're this cherubim of glory. They're these creatures. We're going to show a picture in a minute. And overshadowing an atonement cover, there's a, a golden cover on it called the atonement cover. Atonement meaning this word meaning making things right. This is what we talk about, um, uh, the day of atonement or God atoning for our sins. Him, Jesus coming and dying uh, for us in our place so that the sins would be taken care of. Now we can discuss these things in detail. Now we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Okay, so he gave all these things that are going to happen. We're going to look at these again in a second. And I love that he gets this spot in this passage. He says, there's so many things we don't have time right now to discuss all the details of these things. Now, this already feels like a lot of details. But he says, oh, there's lots. If you remember, there's lots of details and ways to do these and things to do with these. Now, this is the beginning of the tabernacle. The tabernacle becomes a much more complicated thing as time goes on and more rituals and more rules become uh, put into place. There's a sense here that the author uh, is saying, there's all these things that were set up for you, and there's just so much more we don't have time. Now he goes on, he says, when everything had been arranged like this, he says, so you got all this stuff, the furniture and the, the stuff arranged, then here's what would happen, here's what you'd do. You had the right things, and now here's what you're doing with those things. The priests... These just regular priests would enter regularly into the outer area to carry on their ministry. So there's all sorts of things uh, which were uh, giving sacrifices and uh, atoning for things for healing and prayers and things. 
but only the high priest entered into that inner room. And then only once a year. So once a year, one person would enter into that holy place in the middle. This is where heaven and earth met. This is like the throne room of God. This is the holy of holies, but never without blood. He would offer it for himself and for the sins of the people committed. So here, there's a holy, there's a high priest, a special one person who would enter in only once a year, and they would make sure they came with the sacrificed blood of a lamb. They would kill a lamb, an innocent, perfect lamb or a goat, and that blood, the blood would be shed as a reminder of the consequence of the sin. This is what sin leads to. It leads to death. But blood also being the symbol of life, because it's really the you know, the, kind of the life force in people, right? And so they see blood as this symbol of life. And so he'd come in with blood, this sacrifice blood, because this was like a, an offering to say, hey, here's this blood. And he'd offer it for himself because he was a sinner. And he'd offer it for the sins of the people that had committed in ignorance. So even the sins they were unaware of. And the Holy Spirit was showing by this the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time. Do you hear this? This language is very similar to in, in chapter 8. This is a shadow, an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifice being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. All of those things, the blood and all the things put in the right place and the people doing them at the right time and in the right way, they were not able to actually clear the conscience. They weren't actually to clear us of uh, our guilt or shame or our sin. And 10, I love how he said, they were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external re regulations applying until the time of a new order. These were just shadows. These were things they were doing that you go, this doesn't, this doesn't work. Oh, I cannot wait for the one who will come who will enter into this place, who blood will be shed. So that forgiveness will come in a very real way, in a very whole way, in a once for all way. So this system with all of these things um, is put in place. And then throughout time, all the way till this moment when Jesus enters Jerusalem is flipping tables in the temple um, becomes very complicated. This is where it starts. This is the tabernacle. This is a great, I like this image. Just this tent that would be set up in the wilderness and inside of it, there are um, these different tables that they use to slaughter animals for the sacrifice. Over time, these tables would get more complex and more things would be added. And then if you see there, there's the, the tent that's the Holy of Holies. This has lots of those images and those items in there. These items like uh, a table with the show bread or the, all the loaves of bread, the golden candlestick, the altar of incense, the actual Ark of the Covenant. There's a picture of those cherubim, these statues of these angel-like creatures that we hear are in heaven, these spiritual beings that are guarding over it. Inside that Ark was where we saw the golden... Um, jar of manna, and we saw the Ten Commandments, all these very special things. There's these chalices, there's these altars, right? This, um, this holy place with this curtain. Now, this is, this is pretty elaborate, but this gets real elaborate, friends. 
this gets to where not only is the tabernacle important, but also where people are in the tabernacle are important in adjacent to it. So then there are ways that the different priests and the tribes of people are supposed to be, who's supposed to be closest to the Holy of Holies, who's supposed to be farther away, who's supposed to be way out on the outskirts. I see there, Dan, you got to be, Dan is way out there. Look at this. You're like in the suburbs of the, of the encampment. Sorry, Dan, that's, even those are important where the people are so that all these things would be done right. And in the way, I think in brokenness and in sin, that becomes, okay, we just got to do this all right. And then God will be okay with us. And this guilt and this shame and the sin that weighs on me will be taken care of. My conscience will be cleared. And then over time, here's an image of as, as they actually became settled, they actually began to build temples, permanent ones. So you look here on the bottom of the show is an American football field. So the first tabernacle there is in like the dark brown on the side, small. And then as they build another temple, it becomes bigger and more complex. There's more rooms and more things built. And then it's like you see Herod's temple up in the corner. Now they're actually in the temple. There becomes different spaces for where different people can go and sacrifice. There becomes this space where women are allowed to enter. And then there's space where they aren't. There's space for different people groups um, within it. And then as this Ezekiel's temple that is complex and uh, there's there's space, right, for eventually these strip malls of selling stuff. The temple goes from this place that God says, I want this to be a shadow, an image that you go, oh, look at the candle. There's a light that's shining in darkness. Oh, how I cannot wait for God to come and push darkness out. Oh, there is bread that gives life. Oh, I cannot wait for the bread of life to come. And give us life. Oh, there's a sacrifice, and that sacrifice allows me access, that blood allows me access in to the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. Oh, I can't wait for the day when the real high priest can do these things and we all can be in the presence of God, but instead it becomes more complex and bigger and turns into an opportunity for people to have power and authority over people. And in the end, the whole thing gets lost. Why would people do this? Well, I, I had a moment recently that I can, I get why I do this now. Let's fast forward to right now. I recently was at uh, Heights Bakery. Again, I love it. Go get some donuts there. I went to get some donuts. I'm sure all of you had this moment happen. I get my bag of donuts. Okay, my box of donuts for my family. I get the dozen, so for a few days we have donuts stocked up on them. And this, the wonderful woman who runs Heights Bakery says, hey, she, she knows our family and our kids, so she says, hey, have a good day with your kids. And I say, yeah, you too. You have a good day with, with your kids. I, you have kids, right? Or have fun eating donuts with them. Do you... I get caught in this, oh, I'm, I'm such an idiot. What am I saying? Well, you have fun eating your donuts. And then she goes, okay. <laughs> and then as I walk out, I go, oh, there's, these donuts are great. What am I doing? I had this moment, <laughs> what am I doing? I, 
the YouTube thing, right? You say it everywhere when you check out. Hey, have a great day. Yeah, you too. Enjoy your whatever. You too. Well, I don't know if you have that. Are you eating donuts all day? I don't know if you do. I felt so it was it's crazy, right? I get in my car and I go, like, what are you doing? Why are you saying you too? And then digging the hole. Yeah, have fun with your kids and eating donuts with your kids too. I had this, it's this little bit, right? This just hint, sprinkle of like kind of shame and some guilt and like, oh, what does she think about me? And he's in two seconds, I spiral into this little thing. And so I, oh, I got to do something to get myself away. Can I create a quick system that will help me escape my donut shame? Well, sitting right next to me is a box of donuts. You know what? This will help. Eat a tasty donut. Some sprinkles on it. I feel better. Um, right? I created a thing that helps take away my shame or my guilt, at least for that second, right? And you know what that, you know what that actually leads to? That system leads to me uh, grabbing a donut when I'm feeling the shame or the guilt, right? Or, or I need forgiveness. I just, I got to do something that gets scapes. And then you know what that leads me to? Oh, this guy's looking chubby now because he's eating donuts when he's feeling shame or guilt, and then guess what? You feel shame or guilt from that. So you create another system. Okay, now I got to work out. If I can work out enough and things that I won't feel from that, and, and then that doesn't work out. So you create a, a different thing and a different thing, right? This is, it hasn't changed. We might work out to create a system to try to relieve us of shame or guilt or, or get forgiveness or cleansing of our souls to just be a healer and eraser of the sin and brokenness we feel. Maybe we just get angry. It comes out as angry. My thing I do is I just get angry at my kids or a spouse or friends. The anger somehow in the moment kind of relieves me of that or escapes me from that. I just work extra long and hard because if I work hard, at least I'm good at that thing. Or maybe I just hide from people. I just hide or just escape. How great that I have a remote that can turn on a TV and I can watch as many shows in a row as I could possibly imagine and escape this. I've created these little rituals and religions that, is, that free me from shame and guilt. And this is what's happened to people have always felt the same. Can we make this thing God gave us even more complex to help us feel like things are right? And so the book of Hebrews says, those don't do what you think they did. And Jesus comes on Palm Sunday and says, these things aren't doing what you think they're doing. And then he, the book of Hebrews clarifies what that looks like. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. That is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of, his cre of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. Do you hear that? The high priest that these things pointed to, the shadow that we looked at, he went, oh, I can't wait for that high priest. He's come. And he entered the tabernacle and he entered the holy place and it wasn't blood of goats or of lambs, of calves. He entered with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. His blood didn't do it every year and we hope that it, it did something and it didn't. His blood was shed 
and for eternity there is redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. So these rituals make you maybe look outwardly clean, but like Jesus calls to the Pharisees, bones of the dead inside, filthy inside. They're still unclean. There's still this, this guilt, this shame, right? This feeling of being unloved or being alone. Jesus comes to say, those things, these shadowy things should have pointed to me not been the end all. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. You hear this? Christ comes and gives his blood so that we can be cleansed from the inside to the outside. First, believing and holding to the gospel and then that cleansing the inside and now we get the opportunity to serve God and serve his people. And for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. That first covenant, this first system actually caused us to sin more. It revealed to us that we can't do it. And Jesus has ransomed us and set us free. What what Exodus language is that, right? He's come and said, hey, you were enslaved again. You were freed from Pharaoh. You're in the wilderness and you just created a new system to enslave yourselves to religion, to rituals. And I've come to set you free from that. That all of these things, right? All of these, the the furniture and the items all packed into this temple and this tabernacle, all they're doing it in the right ways with the right people in the right places that in the end doesn't do it. All of those things get mashed together into one who's put on a cross and dies and his blood is shed so that forever, once and for all, we have the opportunity to enter into that place. So during that Holy Week, Jesus is walking with his disciples and he says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away with his disciples and his disciple came up to him and he says, do you see these things? Right, they're talking about the temple and all this stuff. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Yes. He comes to town and they think, look at this great prophet. Maybe he'll do a special, a special anointed sacrifice one night. And we can all get like extra points with God. And he says, I'm going to tear this place down. Every last stone. How am I going to do that? Not like you think. Not like actually, I'm not actually out there picking stones up, you know, asking people, hey, join me in tearing down the temple. I'm going to do it by dying on a cross. And the moment I die on a cross, the curtain in that temple is going to tear and all will have access to the presence of God because their great high priest has done this. He says then, right after this, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah. Many will come and say, I'm the one who offers you this. No, 
I'm the one. Cling to me. So as we wrap, wrap this up, I have a challenge for us. As Jesus entered on Palm Sunday and during Holy Week, he, he literally threw tables and he figuratively and spiritually upended the temple, saying, this isn't doing what you think. I'm the one doing what you think calling them to hold fast to them. And then the author of Hebrews saying the same thing to these people who are entrenched in this tradition, saying, the thing didn't do what you think. Remember that week when Jesus came? This is what he told us. I, I encourage us for a few things, uh, to do a few things uh, this week. This is my Holy Week challenge to our church. As we get ready to take some communion here together, I encourage you to grab your communion supplies um, First, I just encourage you to read Matthew 21 through 27. What if each day you sat down, it takes a few minutes, um, and just have an opportunity to journey with Jesus and hear the words he said that week. He unravels this system, and for me it has been a great encouragement to unravel the ritual, religious systems I put in place that I think is going to help, and it hasn't. Maybe outwardly, but not inwardly. So I encourage you this week to maybe read that. And secondly, I encourage you with this. This is corny, but I like it. I encourage you to see the shadows and be the shadows. You like that? It rhymes. What I mean by this is what if this week we looked around creation and in the same way God has given us creation that points us or or given them this system that pointed them in this anticipation to the Savior, I encourage you this week to do the same, to stop and look around the people in your lives, the creation in your lives, and not see them as the end, that like this person will ultimately satisfy me, but this person and what they're doing or saying or what in that is a shadow that's causing me to look up to the one that's casting the shadow, right? We're created as image bearers, and so I encourage you this week to see the shadows this Holy Week. See things that are going to point us to Easter, to the gospel, to Jesus. What if when you looked around, instead of being frustrated with things, we could see those glimpses, sometimes bright glimpses, sometimes dim glimpses of things that God has given us. Here, I just made a list the last few days as I've been thinking. I, I look at my kid, my child in my house, and there's things that it can do to me. I can be discouraged and I also can be reminded of even the simple truth that I'm a disobedient kid that God loves so dearly. Or what if I see passionate people seeking justice in their communities and I can remember that there is a God who cares so much about justice that he would send his son to die so that we could be made right with him. But if I see the sun and the warmth that we're going to feel this week as the temperature rises, and I remember the bright and, and warm days that are to come as Jesus makes all things right. What if I take a bite of a delicious donut with sprinkles and I'm pointed to, the, the, to tasting and seeing how good God is, reminded of the bread that Jesus broke with his disciples, maybe the sprinkled blood in the, that's too far probably, but, but you know what I'm saying? I also want you to not just see shadows, but consider this week what it looks like to be image bearers of God. 
to be the people who get the opportunity to do that. To be the people who are new creations, temples of God, who get to be lights on a hill because we first loved God and now get to love others. We get to be a shadow that people look to and go, oh, what is is about that? What's going on there? And want to look to the Savior who casts that shadow. We get to be lampstands and tablets and arcs and tents this week. We get to help heal hearts and point to the person who ultimately heals hearts. We get to be bring a piece of Jesus to people that we encounter. And so this week I encourage you to, to, to read Matthew 21 through 27, but also see the shadows and be pointed to Jesus. And you get to be a shadow and point people to Jesus.